Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. There are many interesting things happening in and around the field of pathology, and on this podcast, I speak to the people who are doing those things. Today, my guest is Bruce Goldfarb. Bruce is the author of 18 Tiny Deaths, the untold story of Francis Glesner Lee and the invention of modern forensics. Now, if you're interested in forensic pathology and you don't know about Frances Glessner Lee, you're missing a large part of the story because she is largely responsible for what we now know of as forensic pathology in the United States. Today on the show, we'll talk to Bruce about his background. We'll talk about Frances Glessner Lee and how she got involved in forensic pathology. And we'll talk about the nutshell studies of unexplained death and how Frances Glessner Lee created them and what they're used for. Now, here's Bruce Goldfarb. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with me. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, now, before we get into uh, the story of Francis Glessner Lee and uh, talk about your book, I'd like to talk a little bit about you. Tell me a little bit about your background. I know you're the executive assistant to the chief medical examiner of Maryland. H how did that come about? Well, uh, my first job uh, as a, a young adult, uh, I started out as, a, as an EMT and a paramedic and sort of got sidetracked into journalism, which I did for many years. And um, one of the stories I wrote about uh, way back in the 1992 was about these dioramas, the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. And through a, a, a series of circumstances, uh, ended up being in a in a spot where I, uh, you know, was able to heard about this opening for the executive assistant and ended up where I am. Okay, and you're also sort of the the curator of the nutshell studies. That's part of your job, right? Well, it it wasn't uh, an official part of the job. There was never anything uh, explicitly you know written or anything about it. it. Was not part of the job description, but you know, in short order, uh, a variety of nutshell related duties were uh, assigned to me and and i uh, another thing that i was sort of sidled into so yeah okay and we'll get into uh what the nutshell studies are and how they came about a little bit later first so let's talk about francis glester lee uh who is she and and where did she come from francis glester lee is the mother of forensic science she is the the individual who is most responsible for everything that we know of today in a CSI-type crime scene investigation. Uh, and she was born in 1878 and uh, grew up as a child of privilege in Chicago, homeschooled, no formal education. And um, she is the, was one of the driving forces in establishing uh, forensic medicine in the United States. Okay. And they had a, the family had a... Um sort of a summer home out in, uh, which is called the rocks that was in, was it Connecticut? In, 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 in the uh, white mountains of New Hampshire, New Hampshire. Um, okay. Very, very close to uh, Mount Washington, which is notorious for its, uh, its weather. Okay. How did, uh, Ms. Lee get involved in, uh, well, it's called forensic medicine now, but at the time was called legal medicine. How did she get involved in that? Right. Yeah, it was called legal medicine. It's the application of uh, medicine to the administration of law and justice, um, which we now call forensic medicine. 
And uh, she was introduced to it uh, in 1929. She was in her uh, middle age. She was 52 years old and okay. uh, rekindled a friendship with her uh, George Burgess McGrath, who attended Harvard with her brother and was a, a family friend. And she knew him when she was a teenager. Um, they went to the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago together. And um, in 1929, they spent time together in Boston. Uh, and uh, McGrath was uh, a medical examiner for Suffolk County, Massachusetts, which includes most of Boston, and had quite a reputation as a crime doctor throughout New England. And it was involved in many high-profile cases, such as the Sacco and Vincetti investigation and the uh, 1919 Boston molasses disaster. And oh, right. uh, he really piqued her interest uh, and, and got her, uh, you know, got her pointed in this direction for, to support the development of the field. Can you tell me about the, I found the story of the Boston molasses disaster uh, was unusual and interesting. Can you, can you talk about that? What, what was that? In the, I believe it was uh, what January, February, it was the winter of 1919. Um, and uh, Prohibition, people knew the Prohibition was coming down the pike. And so companies were trying to convert as much uh, sugar as they could into alcohol. And there's this massive uh, tank of molasses uh, in Boston, 50 feet tall, um, had something like, what, 2.3 million gallons of molasses in it. And the, the tank was you know, poorly made. It was, uh, uh, defective in many ways, and um, it just midday just suddenly ruptured and blew apart, which sent this. Uh, in, you know, it's it sounds almost comical, but there's this yeah. uh, you know, a 35 foot tall wave of molasses that just suddenly was released, and it knocked buildings off its foundation. It totally smothered people, crushed vehicles and horses and carriages, and um, it was just uh, really terrible. And it just wiped uh, uh, out. And, you know, blocks of buildings and people. And it was horrible. Yeah. I remember reading that it, it was hard to imagine a, a wave of molasses that could knock down buildings. It seemed, it, it seems incredible, you know, by today's standards. It, it does. It, it knocked a, uh, an entire firehouse off its foundation. Wow. Okay. Um, so a little bit more about George Burgess McGrath. You, you write in the book that he was in some ways, the first forensic pathologist in America. How did he uh, get his training? Well, uh, you, you know, prior for most of the, the country's history, uh, America was on the, the coroner system, which is this uh, odd holdover from medieval England. And uh, Boston, Massachusetts uh, enacted, they had the first, uh, America's first medical examiner in 1877. Uh, you know, a medical model, science-based, uh, a different way of doing things in which a, a doctor is specifically trained, you know, a task with doing these death investigations. But at the time, there really was no place in the United States to uh, be trained as a medical examiner. Uh, and George McGrath was appointed as a, uh, as a medical examiner in, uh, my mind is blank, and I believe it was 18, uh, 1897. Um, uh, or 1907, I'm, I'm forgetting, it's one or the other. Uh, but um, he was a pathologist. He graduated Harvard Medical School and had done pathology, and he was uh, very involved in public health. And he was actually uh, uh, among a team of researchers at Harvard that uh, identified, discovered the smallpox uh, virus. Uh, but in any event, he was appointed medical examiner, and then uh, he went to um, 
um, Europe uh, for a year and a half to train at the medical capitals of Europe and learn about legal medicine and uh, uh, the scientific methods. And so when he came back to Boston, he integrated that into his work as medical examiner and into the curriculum that he gave as uh, lectures as a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. So he was, I mean, literally the first pathologist who was trained as a medical examiner in, in doing this in, in, in the United States. So he, he was the first forensic pathologist. Okay. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the coroner system, which uh, still exists in some parts of the country, most parts of the country still today. And in the book, Frances Glesner Lee, she really didn't like the coroner system that much. Uh, she found it unreliable ineffective in some ways. Can we talk about what's the origin of the, the coroner system? Where did it come from? Well, the, the coroner uh, and the sheriff and the constable and the justice of the peace, these are all officials that uh, date from the Middle Ages, from medieval England. And the coroner was okay. the keeper of the pleas of the crown. Uh, he was the royal representative. And his main task was to collect money that was owed to the crown, the monarchy, uh, mainly in fines and, and so forth. And uh, the coroner uh, investigated treasure troves and shipwrecks. Uh, they seized royal fishes. Um, uh, and they also investigated deaths, uh, mainly because uh, if, it was a, if it was a suicide, a suicide was a crime. Uh, and so a person who took his, own, his or her own life um, forfeited all their property and everything. So they would, just, they would seize everything. Uh, and if somebody were, were murdered, uh, then the murderer would be you know, condemned and executed and all their property would be seized. And so um, that's what uh, his job was, to, to look at the nature of the death. And the way he did that was by calling a coroner's inquest. And they would get together a jury of uh, 10 to 12 people. Uh, and uh, it's basically crowdsourcing. Uh, they were required to look at the body. Uh, they would hear from whatever witnesses there may be. And then they voted. You know, how many think it's a, an act of God? How many think it's an accident? Um, and, and that's how things were done through most of um, American history. Now, today, uh, about half the country is still on the coroner system. Uh, and the coroner in many parts of the country uh, is, uh, you know, the, you don't have to have any medical training for it. Um, in states like Missouri and Indiana, uh, the requirement to be a coroner, they're elected to office like any politician. And the only requirement is that you're, eligible to hold public office, you're 18 or 21 years old, depending on the jurisdiction, um, and uh, you live in the jurisdiction where you want to work, and that's it. So, um, uh, you know, the, the difference in qualifications from a coroner are quite different from a medical examiner who is, first of all, a doctor, and they go to right. medical school, uh, learn, they're trained as a pathologist, and have a fellowship in, in forensic pathology, and, and it ends up being 13 years of training before their first day in a job. So that's, there's a big difference between the coroner's and the medical examiners. Right. Now, these the coroner's inquest, so the, the people examining the body, they didn't have any kind of medical training at all. Is that something that still happens here in the U.S.? Yes. Um, I mean, ultimately, even though uh, the coroner is relying on a doctor to give a medical diagnosis, it is the coroner who is signing the documents and certifying the cause and the manner of death. So whatever they put in that, um, in, in those spots in the death certificate become the official record. 
Um, and uh, there's nobody who's like double checking the work or approving, you know, those sorts of things. They are the final authority in that jurisdiction. So, I mean, there, there are no shortage of examples of, you know, things, things gone wrong in, in, in that way. Right. Okay. And then in the book, you talk about uh, in 1914, there was an investigation of the coroner system in New York uh, by a man named Leonard Waltz, Wallstein. Which uh, yeah. caused quite a bit of an uproar in uh, the corners around New York. Can you talk about that? What what came out of that? Well, I mean, not to pick on New York, which is fairly typical, but you know, the people who were serving as corners, they're unqualified. There are political hacks and hangers on, um, and and saloon keepers, um, and um, and that was common throughout the country, and not just the coroners, but also you know the police. Uh, many of them were they're illiterate and uh, you know, didn't have a high school education or elementary school education. Right. Um, but uh, so in New York, they uh, after it, it seems as though you know things happen. It takes a crisis. There's something really shocking, appalling happens. And in New York, what happened was that this. A uh, gentleman died in a uh, a club, um, a, a, a social club, um, and the coroner allegedly refused to authorize moving the body unless he went to a specific funeral home where he was, you know, apparently getting a kickback from. And so people were so outraged, uh, outraged they went to uh, the this young mayor, recall his name off the top of my head, um, who was, uh, you know, a young, aggressive, uh, ambitious reformer. And so he authorized this investigation, um, and uh, you know, there's they found corruption, they found incompetence, uh, you know, all of these horror stories, and they're accused of uh, you know dispensing justice for cash, and um, uh, it's just a, not a good situation. So um, they did enact a, a medical examiner system in um, 1915. George McGrath was a you know he was a witness in in uh, in that reform, um, and I think it went online like 1917 or thereabouts. Okay, was was that the first medical examiner system uh, in the country? Then Boston was the first medical examiner system in uh, in okay. uh, 1877. Um, New York in 1915. Newark, New Jersey, uh, in uh, shortly after that. But that was pretty much it for most of the country until um, the 1930s. Uh, very very slow growth, but that was that was it. Was uh, Boston and New York City and uh, Newark. Okay, let's talk about. Uh, there was a man named Alphonse Bertillon, and he created a system. Bertillon. Bertillon. Okay. Bertillon. Bertillon. Yeah. And then he, his system He's called Bertillon. Bertillon. That's, that's tough to say. All right. So he created the system, which in some ways was a sort of a precursor to legal medicine. What was the system and how did it work? Yeah, he was a son of a, a statistician. Uh, and Bertillon, uh, he theorized that no two people are exactly the same. Um, and, you know, people can be roughly the same, you know, size and physique, but he came up with this with a, a series of measurements. So if it was the, the length of the forearm, um, the length of the foot, um, and uh, the length of the index finger, whatever it was, uh, the size of the ear, 
and you come up with a series of digits that, you know, theoretically you'd think if we're all individual snowflakes that no two people would have exactly the same size ear and foot and forearm. So uh, that's what they did. And they came up with a record along okay. with some other uh, general descriptors like hair color, eye color, these sorts of things. And, and virtually all was also a, a proponent of uh, having a good standardized photograph of the, you know, the, the, the a headshot, just look out of the face and also the profile, um, because uh, that was less likely, less subject to change with age and facial hair and those sorts of things. Um, and so he created you know, a system with cards with these measurements. Um, the problem being that, um, A, you know, these measurements can change as people grow. It doesn't work with children. Um, so uh, if somebody has to reach adulthood, um, and even then there can be some changes over time, ears you know, continue to grow and these sorts of things. Um, sure. And it relied on uh, um, using tools and instruments that were very delicate, calipers and these sorts of things that, you know, went out of alignment and, um, you know, lost their calibration. So the records were um, quite, uh, 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 you know, not necessarily accurate. And But what was the really the final nail in the, in the coffin? Uh, one of them was this example of uh, there was a prison, there was two people who looked pretty much identical. Um, and had nearly identical uh, measurements. Uh, they okay. were and totally unrelated, um, and uh, they were both named Will. Uh, they had the same name, um, looked the same, and had almost uh, identical measurements, uh, and they literally could not tell them apart. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, this system was, I mean, these days it's largely abandoned. You, you say in the book it was when, when fingerprinting became popular that this system was, was largely abandoned, but we still use the photographs. That's the, the classic mugshot. The mugshot, mug right. That's where the mugshot came from, right. Yeah. That's the only thing that lingered from Bertillonage. That's, that's interesting that we still use that part of it. Yeah. Okay. So Francis Glesner Lee, with the help of George Burgess McGrath, they started the Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard. Right. From reading about it in the book, it sounds like that was... A, an uphill battle. Can we talk about sort of the origins of that? Well, uh, you know, Francis Glesner Lee spent time with McGrath in 1929, and uh, you know, he, uh, as we've been talking about coroners and medical examiners, you know, explained to her its origins and the problems and these sorts of things, and it really flipped the switch in her mind, and she realized what she needed to do with her life, and that was to push towards, uh, you know, evolving towards uh, the medical examiner system. And she spent right. the rest of her years towards that goal. And so the first thing she did was to, um, McGrath was a uh, was lecturing at Harvard uh, in an unpaid capacity. And so she gave money to Harvard Medical School to support George McGrath's lectures. And then a couple of years later, decided to give uh, the equivalent of $3.8 million to establish an entire department, a whole academic field. Too, that would include the training and the research and have, you know, a library and resources and a media lab and these sorts of things and photos uh, and do lectures and, and, and also, most importantly, with a fellowship program to train doctors uh, into becoming forensic pathologists and hopefully would serve as medical examiners. And so she did that in uh, roughly 1937 and got going in, in 1939. And she established a, a, a library. Um, and, and these sorts of things. So Francis realized that uh, there were three essential components that needed to um, 
um, happen um, to to enact the coast to coast medical examiner system, and, and one being um, creating that manpower. He needed to train doctors to be the medical examiners. So she did that at Harvard uh, with the uh, uh, the program of the Department of Legal Medicine. Um, another important part was to reform laws to abolish the coroner system and adopt the uh, medical examiner system and in places that had medical examiners to reform the laws to give them greater autonomy, more authority, um, independence, and to insulate them from political pressure and those sorts of things. And she was very, very active in uh, so were the other people at the Department of Legal Medicine, but there she was active in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, Connecticut, Washington D.C., Virginia, uh, Oklahoma, uh, many, many, you know, all over the place. But the one of the the most important parts is the the third component, which is to train the police, which had no training in forensic science prior to the middle of the 20th century, and so they would compromise crimes, you know, crime scenes. They would do things. For lack of knowing better, um, and walk through blood or move the body and, and those sorts of things. And so she established this homicide seminar in 1945 to train police officers. Um, and that's where the nutshells come in. That's what the, their purpose was. Um, right. And so uh, uh, she began that training, the, the seminar, a very intensive week long seminar, which is still held today, now called the Francis Glessner Lee Seminar on Homicide and Medicine. Okay. So, you know, those are the things that she did in, in that area. Initially, the seminar was called the Harvard Associates in Police Science. Um, and well, Harvard Associates in Police Science is sort of the continuing education arm that she established at the same time. Okay. They're, they sponsor actually an advanced homicide seminar uh, every summer that doesn't involve the nutshells. Everybody who is in the, it's called the HAP seminar. Right. Um, everybody who's in the HAP seminar has already gone through um, the basic seminar. I think it was just called the, the Seminar in uh, Homicide Investigation, Harvard Medical School, um, with what it was the uh, original name was. But uh, okay. HAPS was an association that she established in 1945 as well. All right, then let's, let's move on then to the, the, the nutshell studies of unexplained death. What are these and when were they, when were they made? Well, at, at their at their simplest, they are a teaching tool. It's an exercise. Um, and uh, during this homicide homicide seminar, you know the curriculum which, you know, has changed very very little since then. It's you know the facts of violent death haven't changed a lot. It's basically you know blades and bullets and you know those sorts of things. So they they learn about blunt force injuries and, and sharp force injuries, and they observe an autopsy and they learn about drownings and poisonings and those sorts of things. So how do you how do you practice observing a crime scene? Um, and, and that was one of the big challenges they faced. You, you can't take the whole group out to a real crime scene uh, for various reasons. Right. Um, and so, you know, she called upon her background and her skills that she had to address that problem by making miniatures, uh, which is what they are. They're uh, recreations of scenes mm. or creations of scenes. They're, they're they're not literal, you know, translations of actual scenes, but they're teaching tools. They're examples. They're intentionally ambiguous. They're amazingly, exquisitely detailed. Um, there's 18 of them that exist in the collection, and each one of these dioramas cost about what it costs to build a real house. Oh wow! Okay. 
yeah, I was impressed with uh, the, her attention to detail for each of those. They are extraordinary. Yes. Um, you know, she they they were designed for adults with the, at the time men. You know, so adult men, um, and you know, she didn't want anything to detract or distract or make them think that they're playing with toys. So they're very very vivified, and they look they don't look you know sparkling clean, and they look forlorn many of them look you know dreary and dismal and very very realistic it seems that she created right and, and that was part of the, the the point of them they were supposed to be people that were not you know well off or, or or whatever something like that right right yeah part uh you know her intent was not just to give the investigator or the observer the facts of the death but for them to get some sense of who these people were and so um, she, she was a contemporary of uh, Narcissa Thorne, who people may know. She did these uh, very fancy rooms, the Thorne Room collection that's at the, uh, at the Art Institute in Chicago. Uh, and uh, those things are, they're also exquisite. They're just beautiful, um, but they're perfect. And, and, you know, these grand staircases where, um, you know, these gorgeous, gorgeous rooms. Um, and, and that was totally unsuitable for her purposes because that's not the way people live. You know, she had great difficulty finding furniture, for example, that looked worn, that looked like the sort of thing that would be in an ordinary person's house or maybe even broken. Um, and so uh, she had to create a lot of things uh, you know, by hand because it wasn't available commercially. So it's one of the reasons why it was so expensive. But um, right. uh, she spared no expense in, in creating these things. Right. There was the one that she actually lit on fire uh, after yeah. after completely building it, and then she lit it on fire to simulate uh, an actual fire yeah. in in the house. Yes, with the blowtorch, she right. literally had money to burn. She right. broke the house, she burned it. <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> so, I, I watched uh, one of the documentaries about the the nutshell studies, and it showed uh, how people actually use these. I mean, they're they're miniature scale. There's like it's what one inch to one foot. Is that this foot? Right. Right. That's right. And, and so they they're grouped around them. The nutshell uh, dioramas with with flashlights and looking in there. And it was interesting how they're just collecting so much information from these. It, it and that's the the great lesson from them, um, and how much you can learn just by using your eyes. You know, if you really really look and think, and, and when these First of all, when they're assigned, they're assigned in a group of all with the officers, uh, and there might be you know five or six people um, assigned to one diorama. So you're forced to work together as a team, and you're assigned with people you don't know. So you have to work together with strangers as a team and and go about things systematically. Um, and they spend a lot of time. Um, mm -hmm. I've had people tell me, you know, it is it is the next best thing to being to an actual scene. You know, they're so absorbing. And you really, they spend, you know, hours, hours just looking and examining every little detail you have to look at. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of the whole training experience is to withhold judgment. It, it's so difficult to keep an open mind. You look at it and you start to think and you start to hypothesize and you start to put together, you know, and, and that is ruinous. I mean, that will get you, you have to force yourself to, you know, 
don't jump to conclusions. Don't think anything. Just look and look and look and look and what you know. See everything there is to see, and then begin to think about things because uh, you know people do things. People try to you know hide things and and uh, cover up their 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 deeds and these sorts of things. So things not aren't always as they appear. So uh, that's right. very uh, it's a very important part of it is to take your time and look at everything and, and be systematic about it. Mm-hmm. And, and the goal of the ascent, it's not to solve them. It's to learn to observe. Is that right? Exactly right. And it's yes. Uh, and people can't resist. It's irresistible. You know, people want to know who done it and these sorts of things, but they, right. you know, they are, they are purposefully intentionally ambiguous and incomplete. Um, you, in, in most cases, you can't even see uh, the decedent's face. Everything is obscured. You don't have crime scene forensics or an autopsy report. So who done it is really immaterial. Um, in some cases, it's person or person's unknown. In some cases, it's obvious, but that's beside the point. You know, anybody, I, I could point to one and say, yeah, that's a, that's a homicide. That's a suicide. But you know, mm-hmm. you know, how do you know that? And that's a totally different thing. Anybody can come to a conclusion. It's proving, proving your conclusion. Uh, and that's something else entirely. So, um, you know, it, um, it's not about figuring out what happened, but, you know, what is there that would indicate what happened? It, it's amazing that these were created so long ago and they're still in use today and, and relevant. They're, they're still useful. Uh, in, they are. In forensic science today. And in fact, they've inspired several TV shows and documentaries, like I mentioned. They have. And, and I'd like to point out that in, in this 21st century, with all the virtual reality and all this, you know, uh, amazing technology we have, there is no substitute for them. And there's a resurgence. I'm planning a, 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 re, there's a resurgence in the use of three-dimensional models for teaching purposes. Right. Uh, because they, they do things that virtual reality does not. And that's a very interesting thing that, um, that they are still um, timely and, and useful. Right. Now, they've been uh, restored once by the Smithsonian. Is that right? They underwent uh, their first uh, uh, conservation. It was quite an uh, uh, ambitious project in, I think it was uh, 2016, 2017. They went on an exhibit okay. at the uh, Smithsonian's Renwick Gallery right across the street from the White House. Uh, at the end of uh, 2017 till January of 2018, and um, it, about a hundred thousand people uh, saw the exhibition. Its first and only public exhibition, and uh, it was the second most popular uh, exhibit at the museum in its history up until that time. I can imagine. So uh, normally these are not open for the public to view. Well, at the moment, nothing's open to the public. Because we're all uh, socially distanced, but of course, um, of course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would not encourage people. No, no, uh, but it's really, really difficult. They're in sort of a gray area because the the medical examiner's office is, you know, nominally it's a it, you know it's a it's a state agency. It's a, it's a public building of sorts with uh, limited access. Um, but the OCME is is not a museum, uh, and so you know the the. The taxpayers of Maryland don't pay me to sit in that room and 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 hang out with visitors. So I I you know I do try to occasionally you know accommodate 
you know, some people, if they come in from overseas, you know, if they have a particular interest, they're an artist or a miniaturist or those sorts of things. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I do have often people just stopping in randomly and just, you know, off the street and they're, you know, uh, it, it's not that kind of thing. As much as I would like to accommodate, you know, it's just not physically possible. You know, it's sort of like the Beatles, you know, like the, uh, John Lennon once said, you know, they, they, they were a thing. If you missed it, it's a shame. I, I'm sorry, but you know, we put them on exhibit, the Smithsonian, they were there out in the public. Everybody, there's photos, there's video, there's all this stuff. Right. You know, we just can't accommodate everybody who wants to see them. Right. Do you know the solutions to the, to the nutshell studies? Yes. I, I've, you know, I've never actually read, um, the, the quote unquote, you know, the secret solutions that Jerry D uh, keeps under lock and key. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm completely uh, surprised, but I have uh, attended the homicide seminar. First of all, I, you know, I've known about them for over 25 years. Uh, I, I, you know, did the whole conservation with the Smithsonian. We learned about them inside and out. And uh, I first attended the homicide seminar in 2013 and I, I've attended every year since. Uh, and, uh, so I've, I've heard all the permutations of all, I think, um, I don't know, there, maybe there are some things that I don't know, but, uh, you know, when I, I've heard the, the analyses of the, of the various dioramas over and over and over again. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, I don't know what I don't know, but I know what I know. <laughs> okay. That's great. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed your book. I think it's great that the, you're getting the story of Francis Glesner Lee and the origin of, of forensic pathology in America out. It's a great story. I didn't, I didn't know it, so I, I really learned a lot from the book. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to that you'd like to mention? I don't think so. I think it's just been a it's just been a, a very enjoyable, wonderful conversation. Yeah, great. I, I've enjoyed it too. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you. Big thanks to Bruce Goldfarb. Now, again, the title of his book is "18 Tiny Deaths: The Untold Story of Francis Glesner Lee." and the invention of modern forensics. This is a great book. I really enjoyed it. I'll have a link in the show notes uh, if you'd like to check it out. I'll also have links to Bruce Goldfarb on Twitter and some resources about Francis Glessner Lee and the Nutshell Studies. You can follow this show on Twitter as well, at People of Path. And uh, also check out the website, peopleofpathology.podbean.com. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave me a rating and review, and let me know what you think. I am a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.